This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that's me, reveals how the world really does work. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you, those of you who have done so much to help promote the show and familiarize others with it. Uh, There's so many new people that are with us every week, and and that is entirely due to your work in in that department. So I thank you very, very much indeed. Much appreciated. As we take a little look at the spirituality of money, here's the problem. Why is it that so many otherwise smart, intelligent, even educated people are convinced that money is evidence of moral malfeasance. That somehow or another, uh, they, they feel guilty about money. This is one of the things that drives liberal politics uh, because people who, uh, are, who feel enormous guilt about having money uh, are easy marks. They can easily be drawn to support dubious movements and uh, speculative uh, organizations whose purpose is, in essence, to undermine the freedom that a transparent market gives everybody. And I think everybody already realizes that in the, in the great divide between freedom and equality, uh, you kind of have to make a decision. There is a similar divide between freedom and security. If you want to provide people with security, you're going to have to diminish freedom. Why is that? Well, because providing freedom to A means restricting B's actions. Uh, it may be something as basic as uh, as a government deciding that B must yield some of the work of his sweat uh, in order to sustain A, right? This, this is part of a government's job is to provide security for people. That can only be done by taking money from somebody and giving it to somebody else. That's the only way it can be done because government cannot create money. Now, some of you have written to ask me about that question as well. Why, why do you say government can't create money? Well, government can print money. That is true. 
but uh, in so doing, it is actually stealing money from everybody because money doesn't come about when it is printed. Money comes about before it is printed, and the trick of a stable government is to make sure that no more money is printed than has been created in value by human economic interchanges and transactions. Now, it's not that easy to know how to do it. And one of the uh, great success stories is during the Victorian period and uh, well up into the early 20th century, uh, the, the British pound, which was the dominant currency of the day in much the same way the dollar is now, the, the, the British pound didn't change in value. It didn't get... Um, diminished, it didn't get cheapened, it wasn't inflated. Why? Well, because the Bank of England never printed more money than had been created by the economy. But wait, this is prior to communications, this is prior to telephones. How on earth did the British Empire, how is it possible that London, the Bank of England, was able to print money in accordance with how much productivity had taken place in Australia, in Canada, in South Africa, all and India, all the places that operated on the British pound sterling, and yet people relied on the pound much more than today they rely on the dollar. And there's a very big difference. And so how did the Bank of England know when it was okay to print money and when they shouldn't? And the answer is a valuable insight into the nature of money. What did they do? Well, don't forget, back then, the pound was backed by gold. And so anybody who wanted to could exchange their paper currency for gold, pieces of gold, or they could exchange their gold for currency. Gold is secure. You feel confident. It holds its value. It is what it is. Currency is a lot more convenient, right? It's very difficult to buy a milkshake if all you have are one-ounce gold coins because each one is worth, you know, say about $1,000 or so, depending on what the current price of, of gold is. But if you have a South African Krugerrand or a Canadian maple leaf coin, uh, each of which contains an ounce of gold, then you certainly have something of value, and it'll hold its value in, in those terms, whether, whether it holds its value better than investments in the stock market um, is not such a simple question. And so, obviously, I would never say to anybody to keep all their assets in gold. Of course not. But uh, some degree of security with some holding of gold, sure. Uh, but the trouble is that when you want to buy a milkshake, very difficult to do that with a pound, uh, with a with a gold coin. So what you would do is you'd go and take your gold coin and ask the bank to exchange it for uh, X number of pounds, however much the exchange rate was then. They'd give you the paper currency. You'd have 10 shilling notes, one pound notes, um, and, uh, and, and you could go about and take care of your daily business. But... Uh, how did, the, how did the Bank of England make sure that they were not uh, inflating currency, that they were printing the right amounts? Very simple. Very simple. Uh, the Bank of England in the city of London 
And it's still called the city, by the way. It's still called the city of London, that area around Threadneedle Street where the Bank of England is. Um, there, there were a lot of uh, coffee shops. There were a lot of offices. There were places where merchants did business. They transacted deals. And these were merchants from uh, who had connections with all parts of the empire. Uh, some of them did business in, in India. Some had did business in Canada. Um, others were correspondents for businesses there. But a tremendous amount of information. And don't forget the telegraph. Um, the very first telegraph message was in May, 19, May 1844, and yet within only a very few years, uh, cross-transatlantic telegraph cables was, uh, were, were laid and information was being communicated by telegraph. And so people had a very strong sense in the city of what was going on. Now, when those people in the city of London would come to the bank and ex hand in their currency and ask for gold in exchange, that said, that said to the bank, hello, we, there must be too much currency out there. Uh, there is a feeling that the currency is losing its value. There's too much of it. And they stopped printing money because that was an indication that uh, too much had been printed compared to the economic productivity that had taken place not just in the United Kingdom, but in the colonies of South Africa and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and India. And, uh, and then uh, they wouldn't, they, they'd hold the printing presses. And business would continue pretty soon eventually. Um, people wanting to do business needed currency they didn't have. And so they'd come and hand in their gold and ask for currency. That was a signal to the Bank of England to start up the presses again and go ahead and print currency. And that really served for 100 years as a very wonderful, reliable way of communicating information. Because that's really what it is. You know, Paul Johnson, he's a, a British historian whom I greatly admire. He wrote a book called The History, A History of the American People. Definitely, definitely worth. If, you, if you're interested in history and you want to get a, a, a clear picture, it's, the book is uh, seven, eight hundred pages, big book. But, uh, but uh, definitely, if, if you have an interest, it's, worth, it's, a, it's one of the books I'd, I'd say. If you are looking for a history book of America, that's a pretty good way to go. Anyway, one of the things he says very nicely in the book, uh, page 640, if you must know, he says, money is our oldest medium of systematic communication. See, that's right. You often hear people saying money is a medium of exchange. I, I much prefer what Paul Johnson said. Money is our oldest medium of systematic communication, allowing stable communities of productive people to exchange information about trustworthiness, value, productivity, and even need. Money represents the promise of one party to deliver goods or services to another on demand. It is ultimately not a material, but a spiritual matter. That's very interesting. Money is a spiritual matter, sure enough. Um, there was a Senate hearing in 1912, and um, it was conducted by a lawyer called Samuel Unter Untermeyer. And it was, uh, it was an assault on, on capitalism. It was an assault on the market. And um, Samuel Untermeyer had J.P. Morgan, the banker, in front of him in giving testimony. And uh, he insisted 
said Antemeyer, Samuel Antemeyer insisted uh, to Morgan that commercial credit is based entirely on property and money. And so people who have property and money can get credit. People who don't have property and money cannot. Hence, the system is rigged against poor people. Uh, Morgan explained that Antemeyer was wrong. He said character comes first, long before property and money. And um, a quote of Morgan's from the hearings um, on that day in 1912 was, A man I do not trust could not get money from me on all the bonds in Christendom. In other words, it is all about trust. And that's why one of the nation's founders was James Pollock. And uh, he was startlingly insightful, I think, when he insisted that the words in God we trust be inscribed on U.S. currency, not on the walls of churches, not on the covers of Bibles, on the currency. Very important point. And so if we don't understand the spiritual nature of money, then we are at a distinct handicap. For one thing, it's hard to understand how it is that so many bright people believe that having money is bad, that it proves something horrible. Essentially, that you are violating the principles of equality. And I'm going to explain just how it is coming back, why it is that this fundamental misunderstanding causes so much damage. Uh, first of all, our website is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, here is a, a nice book that I think you'll enjoy. What's nice about it is that uh, you don't need to set aside any sizable slice of time. Um, it's, uh, it's called Dear Rabbi and Susan, and it's a compendium of questions that have been asked to us. We've selected uh, the best questions and our answers that we gave, and you can page through it. You can look at topics. You can divide it by topic. You can take a look at. Uh, you can just read casually. But it's it's just a quick, uplifting, and uh, and I think interesting insight into how ancient Jewish wisdom works in a very practical way. The book, um, Dear Rabbi and Susan, does not uh, include any questions on. Uh, the Bible doesn't, doesn't answer questions about, well, this verse says that and this verse says something else. So how do the two verses reconcile? We don't do that. Uh, n neither does it answer questions about theology. Why? Well, because um, I've always explained that theology is all about what people think of God. And I'm just not interested. I'm really not that interested in what generations of people have thought about God. But what I am interested in is what God thinks about people. Now, that is far more interesting. That's not theology at all. That is Bible. That's ancient Jewish wisdom. So uh, take a look at uh, Dear Rabbi and Susan at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, and I'll be right back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. 
It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how did it fit in there box? You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Back with me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Thanks so much for being there. As we uh, return to the, the subject of money and trying to understand uh, why is it that bright, educated people on university campuses around the country um, are so absolutely certain that money is evil, that possessing money proves that you've been a bad person, and that the pursuit of money is somehow uh, a shocking and immoral enterprise? Well, uh, it starts off with a failure to understand the nature of spiritual and physical. And so let's just clarify that uh, when your rabbi uses the word spiritual, I am not wearing my rabbinic hat, okay? Not wearing a rabbinic hat. Uh, I'm speaking about uh, a laboratory, okay? When I say spiritual or physical, I'm not talking about spiritual doesn't mean good, virtuous, moral. No, there's bad spiritual, there's good spiritual. Uh, material, right? What is material? Okay, fine. It's very simple. Here's the definition. Anything material can be measured in a laboratory. Anything spiritual cannot. And so, for instance, a uh, can a violin be measured in a lab? Of course. You can weigh it. You can measure its length. You can even uh, measure the, the color of, of it, yeah, certainly you can measure a violin. How about a tune? How about a tune? Is a tune material or spiritual? Is there any lab instrument that can tell you whether a tune is a good tune or not? Of course not. Is there any laboratory in the world that can tell you if a certain tune is liable to make people sad or make people feel happy? Right? Some tunes bring out the, the sadness. So that's the genius of, of a composer, somebody who can write a tune. But there's no instrument that can do it at all. Uh, violins are physical or material. Tunes are spiritual. When we, uh, when we hire somebody in our business, are we hiring for physical characteristics, material characteristics, or spiritual characteristics? Well, other than in very rare circumstances, if you're hiring somebody to be a uh, professional wrestler or to uh, dig a ditch to do manual labor or to be a swimsuit model, for the most part, though, we hire people for spiritual qualities, not physical qualities. And uh, those are qualities like uh, reliability, trustworthiness, resilience, determination. There is no lab in the world that can measure those things. If there was, they'd make a fortune. 
because every time any single person wanted to hire somebody, they'd pay for a test so they could be sure they were hiring the right person. Unfortunately, no such test exists. And uh, last time you applied for a job, you might have been asked to take a psychological profile test uh, where they would um, put, hope to be able to, to measure some of these qualities in you. Um, very unlikely, extremely unlikely that any reliable readings come out of that. So uh, we've got to understand then that spiritual are things that are non-measurable, physical are things that are measurable. A person's weight, a person's gender, a person's color, all of these things easily measurable in a lab, and all of these things largely irrelevant in 99% of the cases of hiring somebody. Uh, the things we really want are non-measurable in a lab. The honesty, the integrity, the loyalty, the trustworthiness, the resilience, the ability to uh, bounce back from a, from, from a disappointment. Optimism. Measure, measurement of optimism is very important. It just can't be done. And so uh, there we go. All of these things are the things that are valuable, and these are the things that are spiritual. So we ask ourselves, what is money? Is money physical or is money spiritual? Which is it? And you look at your wallet and take out your money. Take a look. What are you going to see? Strips of colored paper. Uh, you might have some metallic discs. You might even have some oblong plastic cards on, which, on the back of which is painted a brown strip made up of certain arrangements of iron oxide molecules. That's right. So, what is it? So, is money physical or spiritual? If I uh, uh, write a check to you for $10, have I just made money? Created money? Sure. How about if I write on a napkin? Uh, you know, 24th of April 2013, I hereby promise to pay um, John Smith $10 by 10 days from now. All right, there's my. How about if I just shake hands and say I'll give you $10 on Friday? So, what is money actually? And the answer is that money is something utterly spiritual. It's not physical, it is spiritual. And what is it? Well, you see, it is a measure of how much you have done for another human being. And before I explain that, let me just take a, a quick look at something that's changed in America. Uh, the production of wealth in the United States of America once required uh, a heavy investment in material goods, right, in capital. When uh, Rockefeller started the Standard Oil Company um, in the, the middle 1800s, he bought 60 acres of land in Cleveland, and he very cleverly uh, located, he bought land located both on Lake Erie and on a railroad head, because he was now going to be buying crude oil from the wildcatters, from the drillers all over the Midwest, all the way down to New Orleans, and uh, he was going to be refining it into kerosene, because don't forget, up till then, uh, homes were lit after nightfall by whale oil. And whale oil was expensive back in those days, over $2 a gallon. 
And so not everybody, rural people, could not afford it. And for the most part, their productivity ended when the sun went down. But um, all of a sudden, Rockefeller was producing oil for a frac kerosene oil for a fraction of the cost of whale oil, and America's lights went on. It was remarkable. And he... Um, and, and he built this huge refinery, and he bought rail cars to carry it, and he bought barges to ship the oil uh, from his refinery on Lake Erie to the, to the Erie Canal and down the Hudson to New York. But we've spoken about that in an earlier podcast. You know of my infatuation with the Erie Canal already and um, obsession, maybe. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, um, that's how it used to be, making money in America – required stuff, material, physical stuff, barges, refactories, refineries, uh, U.S. Steel, right, in Pittsburgh. Remember U.S. Steel? They used to make 30 million tons of steel a year. They employed 300,000 employees. So you, you can get a sense of what a tragedy it was, how serious a blow it was when U.S. Steel went away, you know, what, how it destroyed the livelihood of, of millions of people. It was very, very, very difficult times. Um, U.S. Steel was an enormous operation, making steel, and it owned ships and factories, and uh, it was unbelievable. Um, today, an American steel manufacturer, USX, has about 15,000 workers, making only a fraction of the amount of steel that was once made, so, okay, fine. So we know that steel comes from overseas now. Steel comes to us from China, Japan, uh, India, Japan. Uh, but what has taken its place? All those 300,000 people who used to work at U.S. Steel, what are they doing now? In other words, I ask, what has taken the place in our economy of physically massive products like steel? And that wasn't all. We made ships. And we made railway locomotives, and we made huge factory machines. All of these things, right? Stuff really matter, massive matter. Um, and now what? Well, today, wealth is built largely on goods with very little mass to them. Software, you know, what's the size and weight of software? Non-existent. Drugs? Computer chips, investment products, entertainment, a far greater proportion of America's domestic product comes from entertainment now than it did in 1900. This may, by the way, be a bad sign, but be that as it may, for the moment, all I'm trying to discuss is how we went from creating wealth with big, heavy things to now creating wealth where the wealth-to-weight ratio is very high. Uh, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce it, which sort of just gives you an idea of me. I'm a bit of a redneck on this, but there's a very fancy French fashion house called Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S. Right? Fine. Y feel free to, to, to let me know the correct <laughs> pronunciation. I'm sure I don't have it right, and I'm not going to sound as if I have some kind of weird French affectation to come up with it. So for present purposes, Hermes <laughs> is the fashion house. Well, um, a Hermes scarf I saw for sale 
a little while ago at more than $1,000 for a Hermes silk, lady silk scarf. What does the thing weigh? I don't know, what, two ounces maybe? So there you get a, an interesting idea, right? Shall we say $1,000, although it was a lot more than that, $1,000 for two ounces of material. Now, obviously, for software, it's much higher than that because it's very expensive and weighs absolutely nothing. Drugs are expensive, weigh just a little bit. Music, movies, entertainment, you get the idea. It's very interesting how things have changed. And part of what we've got to do uh, as, we, as we shape our own financial destinies and we try and figure out how best to make money, we've got to be able to look at the trends. We've got to spot what's happening and know how to apply it and learn lessons from that that we can then use to shape the directions in which we are going. Uh, when we come back, I'll give you a contrast between Shell Oil, the great Dutch uh, oil conglomerate, and uh, Microsoft, or for that matter, Google or Apple. Uh, interesting things. Let me explain as soon as we come back. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Please go over there and order yourself a copy of Dear Rabbi and Susan. It is educational, it's informative, it's uplifting, it's, it's inspirational, and uh, it's cheap, quick, and easy. Uh, it's an enjoyable read, and, um, and at the same time, useful as well, I believe. Dear Rabbi and Susan, and if you don't have that yet, or if somebody you'd like to gift doesn't yet have it, now would be a terrific time to go over here, oh, go over there, and uh, make my work in creating that resource valuable. For you and me, because nothing happens until money changes hands. At that point, you have acquired a book, I have been paid for my work, and voila, as the French people in the Hermes company say, away we are, off to the races. Uh, quick break, I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back in a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Revealing how the world really works, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. Here we are, back again together on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I am your rabbi, revealing how the world really works. And there is no question about it that money is an essential part of how the world really works. And I've criticized grievously on previous shows um, the terrible, lamentable absence of money education in American high schools, that people graduate from American high schools knowing absolutely nothing about money. 
Well, the tragedy is that so many young people graduate from American schools knowing so little about anything, I suppose that money is just one more gap in an otherwise uh, terrible, terrible a system that goes on in GICs, that's right, government indoctrination camps, otherwise known by some still by the quaint old 20th century name, public schools. But uh, uh, there we go. Uh, I said I would tell you about uh, one of the trends. Well, uh, if, you, if you look at the market value, the cap value of all the, the shares of a company out there in the marketplace, you know, its capitalization value, and also the asset value, meaning um, if, let's imagine a company were to go out of business, and it sold off, you know, shareholders and creditors sold off everything that was left, the land that the company owned, the real estate, the buildings, machinery, uh, transportation equipment, uh, whatever it is. And so, if you think of of older-style companies, you know, like uh, Royal Dutch Shell, for instance, British Petroleum, or even these companies are doing massive retooling and uh, and moving, showing that they are aware of the changes and are moving into much more of a spiritual, less materialistic economy. And, uh, And again, when I say less materialistic economy, please know that I am not... Uh, using that term in the way that uh, uh, Upper East Side New York matrons would haughtily dismiss somebody and say, oh, he's so materialistic. Um, no, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about it in, in a laboratory sense, of course. So uh, what happens if, uh, shall we say, if Shell gets liquidated? Well, they've got oil wells, they've got ships, they've got pipelines, they've got all kinds of, they've got factories, they've got uh, uh, refinery plants. And if, uh, if they had to sell off everything they own, why, to be sure, uh, shareholders and creditors would most likely get, get everything. They'd be okay because there's a lot of assets there. How about Microsoft? What are the assets at Microsoft? Well, as, uh, as somebody, not me, put it rather succinctly, it is very disturbing to run a business where all your assets walk out of the door at 5 o'clock every afternoon. <laughs> you, can, you can see the problem, right, from an accounting perspective. <laughs> uh, would you, right, would you, if you're running a, a factory, would you let somebody carry out all your machinery every afternoon with a promise that he'll have it back in place at 8 o'clock the next morning? Of course not. And yet Microsoft, Apple, Google, companies with huge, um, uh, uh, with huge capitalization values, if they got liquidated, there's nothing there. Many, as far as I know, they may rent their, their premises. They may not even own their offices. So they may not own any land. So what, what is there to liquidate at Microsoft? A few thousand desks. Well, as you probably know, the second-hand furniture market doesn't produce an enormous amount of, of revenue. And so same at Google, same at Apple, to a certain extent at Amazon, and so many other companies that are less famous but uh, are also companies that have a high capitalization value, uh, they're writing software. They're they're taking care of uh, 
um, sales, automation software, all kinds of things. These companies are made up of assets that are truly in the heads of all the people who work there. It's, it's pretty amazing. But that really does help us understand clearly that the value in money is spiritual. That's really what we're talking about. And uh, then I, I would also go on and say, look, uh, you, you have to know, you have to get used to the idea that money is our lifeblood. And I don't mean that in an avaricious-sounding way or in a uh, Shakespearean Shylock kind of a way. But when I, when I say that money is our lifeblood, what I'm saying is that our relationship with money has to be healthy and it has to be realistic. And you have to realize that money is probably the most effective way for men and women to quantify their creative energy. It is a most convenient way of measuring our time and how we've spent our time, our dignity, our skills, our health, our experience, our persistence, our connections. All of that translates into our money. And what's so important to realize about this is that provided that we do those things correctly, provided we maintain close relationships with many people who know us and like us and above all who trust us, and provided that we build connections with previous generations, with our parents and our grandparents, and we build generation, uh, future generation relationships with our children, and we've used our time correctly, we've acquired skills, we've acquired knowledge, we've acquired uh, relationships, all of these things are the sum total of our net worth. They are really our money. And if you've been doing the right thing, and this is what's so important to understand, that yes, there are exceptions. Yes, you've got the Bernie Madoffs. You've got the people who made money um, doing things wrong. But as I pointed out in one of my lectures in Niagara Falls last week when somebody asked me about this, was that um, uh, I looked into this and discovered that before Madoff was uncovered, before the scam was revealed, people liked him very much. People admired him. People uh, yearned for social connection with him. Um, and you know, he was seen as a, as a friendly guy and a nice guy. That's kind of how, now. Unfortunately, it was all it was all obviously bogus, and there was a, a terrible uh, um, uh, fraud going on behind the scenes. But making money doesn't mean that you've had to tread on widows and orphans as you have ruthlessly clawed your way up the heap. No, that's not how it works. There are people like that. There are exceptions, but it's the exception. It's not the norm. The norm is that when you use your time well, when you don't act self-destructively, when you have parents, and this is a, a big must, obviously, um, you know, if, if you were born to a single mother who had a sequence of boyfriends and left you watching television, I'm sorry to say this, but there is no government program in the whole world 
that can give you the same shot at life as another child gets. Right? That's a, that is a terrible tragedy. And we're doing a disservice to people by pretending otherwise. We, we need to make absolutely certain that people understand that the government cannot replace you. When you bring a child into the world, the life that child has is dependent on you, on nobody else. If you nurture that child and take care of that child's physical health and you take care of that child's spiritual health by teaching that child what no means and teaching the child how to exercise the muscle of self-restraint and the muscle of self-discipline. And so by the time that child is six or seven or eight or nine or ten, he or she already understands the word no. He or she already has responsibility. He or she already has a sense of self-discipline. He or she has already had hours and hours and hours of you reading to that child, reading aloud. It's a fantastically beneficial thing to read to your child. And don't stop when your child is eight or nine or ten. There are books that families can read together. We used to devote about... Uh, 30 to 45 minutes at uh, every Friday night Sabbath meal um, to reading a book. And we'd pick a book that everyone in the family could uh, could understand or at least relate to. Sometimes, you know, we'd stop. I'd, I would read and then I'd pause and my wife would make sure that the younger children uh, caught on and knew what it was and, and what was going on. And then I'd continue. And really, 30, 45 minutes, we got through some wonderful books that way, books that my children now know and they speak of and they remember. And it was a family bonding experience as well. I can't adequately emphasize the value of doing this. But apart from anything else, you are teaching your children the value of books and reading. And uh, there is a growing population of young people today whose entire connection is based entirely on uh, electronic devices. And I have to tell you that gaining information from an electronic screen is not as effective as gaining it from a book. There are a lot of reasons for that. I'll give you one just right away, which is an electronic screen uh, contains many, many distractions. Almost everything you read online has links to take you somewhere else. And before you know where you are, you know a whole lot of nothing about a whole lot of different things. But when you read a book, you are reading a book. And you start at the beginning and you finish at the end. And you've got something of value for the time that you invested. It really is a, uh, an entirely different idea, isn't it? You see what I mean. Um, okay, quick pause. And uh, I remind you that I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. You will find my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. The reason I want you to go there is because you can ask me a question there under Ask the Rabbi pages. You can read uh, back issues of Thought Tool and Musings and ATRs. Um, you can uh, communicate with me, all kinds of things. You can make sure that you are on our mailing list so as you get regular information from us. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Plus, you may invest in a book called Dear Rabbi and Susan. It's available right now at a terrific discount. It's, it's a, it really reduces its cost to an insignificant amount, particularly I was talking about books. This is a book that brings value into your home. Talk about a book that is worth reading. Uh, a lot of folks use Dear Rabbi and Susan as a book to read to their families. The way you do it is you read the question. 
and then you let your family speculate on what might be a good answer. How might you have answered? And then you can read the answer that, uh, that I and my wife delivered based on ancient Jewish wisdom, and you can evaluate it. Good, not good, whatever you think, but, but it, it allows interaction with your family and, and something well worth doing. Or get it for somebody whose family needs this kind of interaction. Tell them how to use it. Give it a gift. Give it as a gift from them, from you to them, which they'll be able to use in this fashion. And I don't think you will be sorry at all. I, th I know that they certainly won't. I know that I won't because I will appreciate the business. Thanks so much. Quick break, and I'll be right back with you here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being there. And again, as always, I deeply appreciate the extent to which you've promoted the show, made other people aware of it, and uh, I trust they are grateful to you as I am. So um, the, the last little bit of this discussion on, on money um, involves the explanation for why it is that people do feel so uncomfortable with it. Well, let me explain that uh, the materialistic view of the world, the Marxist materialistic view of the world, um, is that there is no spiritual reality. That's one of the reasons that uh, atheism is an intrinsic part of the communist experience. And if there is absolutely no spiritual reality, then everything is materialistic, right? And the reason that you can tell that we in the United States of America, and in, in fact throughout pretty much of Western civilization around the world, we have been inundated by an almost irresistible tsunami of materialism is that uh, newspaper publications, books, magazines, all do everything they can to promote the idea that we're nothing but a bunch of molecules of carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium uh, all bundled together according to some basic plan. Uh, a spider is one arrangement of, of organic molecules, uh, a lobster is another kind, and a human is a third kind, and there's a chimpanzee, that's yet another kind, but they're all basically the same idea, and that there's nothing you need to know about a lobster or a spider or a chimpanzee that cannot be determined in a lab, right? I need to, to know what the lobster likes eating. I need to know the temperature of the water it likes to be in. I can determine all of these things and keep the lobster happy. Well, their belief is that exactly the same thing is true for people. And that's why government housing 
and the dole, the welfare, all of this is designed on the basis that we are just lobsters. And you've just got to provide us with the living circumstances that the scientists and the experts in their labs have determined. And there's no reason not to have a utopian, beautiful society. This is very deeply ingrained on the left. Uh, you will find cover stories in news magazines about how gambling is a sickness, ad uh, adultery and infidelity in marriage is just a hardwired characteristic of human males, just like it is of bonobos and, uh, and baboons. So uh, all of this is geared towards trying to provide a coherent worldview, which is totally material. The trouble is that when you're dealing with bonobos and baboons and spiders and lobsters, that works just fine. But it doesn't work with humans. Touched by the finger of God, a unique creation with deep and profound spiritual needs, which can never be answered or explained in a laboratory. And so, not surprisingly, there is a clash within our culture, a vast, deep, unbridgeable chasm that cuts cleanly like a canyon through the culture. What about money? Well, here is a rule about a physical object. Any material or physical object can only occupy one place on the space-time continuum. What? Have you just said, Lappin? Well, I know this sounds ridiculous, but have you ever wondered why you don't meet yourself when you walk into the railway station you use to catch your train to work? Why don't you meet yourself? I mean, after all, you've been there before. Well, yes, that's the whole point. It's called a space-time continuum. And that means that no object can occupy the same place in the space-time continuum, meaning that no two objects. In other words, if you are in the station yesterday, then you were there yesterday. But, but time is part of the pattern. If there was no time, well, you'd kind of bump into yourself in that, in that way. It's, I know it's bizarre, uh, and it sort of moves into the area of philosophy, intersecting with uh, quantum mechanics. But anyway, bottom line is that if I put a violin on the table in front of me, that's where it is, right? And it's a violin signed by Stradivarius, Cremona, what's it, 1742, am I right? I think so. And, uh, and now I turn my back, and when I look around again, my Stradivarius violin is no longer on my table it's in your hands well the logical and obvious conclusion is that you took it from me right now if i was whistling a tune or playing a tune on the violin and then you walked in listened to the tune pulled out your own violin and started playing the tune it's perfectly obvious that you took the tune from me but because it's spiritual you didn't leave me with any less than i had before on the contrary, you've left me in a more musical world where more people have the tune. That's good, not bad. That's a very big difference between spiritual and material. Material things 
can only be in one place at a time. If you move it away from one place to another, it's now in the new place. It's not in the old place anymore. The logical conclusion, if you, uh, if you see all right, a uh, box of cigars on the table, and a few minutes later it's not there, but it's under somebody's arm, the logical guess is he took it from the table and now is walking away with it. That's what happened. Well, if you don't realize money is spiritual, like so many people today think it's physical and material, then when you see Tom with money in his pocket, you just know that if you look hard enough, you will find Jerry from whom he took it. Because any time a material object is in somebody's possession, it's got to have got there by being transferred from somewhere where it used to be but isn't anymore. And this is why it is that modern materialists view the possession of money as an awkward embarrassment because it implies you've taken it from somebody else. No, you see, you don't make money, you take it. You can make a tune. You can't just have a violin. It's got to be brought into existence. Money, if you've got money, you must have taken it from somewhere else. And that there is the root cause of what really is going on with the overall distrust of money, distrust of people with money, dislike of people with money. And so when the government says the rich must pay their fair share, well, you know what they're talking about, right? Pretty obvious. The rich must pay their fair share. The implication is that a certain group of people who we shall define as rich uh, are not paying to the government as much as they should. Defined by who? What's fair? None of that is specified. Not who qualifies as rich and not what qualifies as a fair amount. But it's inflammatory language that makes people who are tending towards a materialistic worldview tends to make them feel, oh yeah, right, right, the rich, the bad rich, they've got money. And this is uh, a cause of great despondency and, and great uh, pessimism for the future of the country. Because if people, in fact, retain that idea of what money is about, then we are well on the road to socialism. And there is no escape. And so spiritual education, I think, is absolutely paramount. People coming to open their eyes, at least to the faint possibility that money actually is quite different from what you thought it was. Certainly, you were not taught anything about it at school. And so why would you intuitively understand the complexity of money as a spiritual entity? But to do so is essential not only to protect your own ability to build your finances and your fortune, but in order to defend the future of the country as well. The understanding of money is one of the biggest problems confronting us. And spreading this podcast is a good way of getting more people to try and at least be humble about acknowledging that maybe they don't really know what money is and they'd be open to talk about it. They'd be open to listen to a few episodes of this podcast when I'm talking about money, which is a lot of the time, and, uh, and perhaps be ready 
to re-sculpt their own view of money, that of their friends, that of their family. And little by little, the good word spreads and does good. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. My website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, love for you to head over there. Take a look at the book on special deal this week entitled Dear Rabbi and Susan. Take a look at that. You'll enjoy it. And uh, get hold of a copy for yourself. Get hold of a copy for friends. It is inexpensive and uh, worth vastly more than its lightweight and inexpensive cost would suggest. Uh, also make sure you're on our mailing list. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. There's also a bunch of other reading to be done at the website. And uh, it's just a way of us staying in touch with one, with one another. Thanks very much indeed. And with the time running out on today's show, all that is left is for me to pray that you are blessed with a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.